makes it a two-point game. There's the mismatch right here. Now it's Luka. Deep three over. Welcome back to 77 Minutes in Heaven, the Athletics Mavs podcast. I'm Damaris. He's Followell. Followell, it's July 1st. Let's it talk is. free agency. <laughs> you know, it's not like the normal July 1st, Brian. Did you oh, know that? Oh, man. This yeah. used to be a day when we couldn't tear you away from your Twitter. <laughs> no. This was uh, waiting for Sham Sharania to tweet all kinds of things over the course of uh, whenever whenever the moment started. You know, it, it, it was different last year because I was in L.A. working on Gold Cup soccer broadcast for Fox Sports. And I remember I didn't have a game. July 1st was on a Sunday. And last year, you and Norm Hitchkiss did a show on the ticket. So remember on the 30th. Yeah, on the 30th because they moved it they up moved a few it hours. six hours up. That's they right. said, hey, why are we letting this prime television event go off at 11 central. <laughs> yeah, at midnight Eastern, right. Yeah, so we actually went on the air at 4.30, uh, and then 5 o'clock the buzzer sounded, and we went till 7, and in those two hours, I believe there were about $2 billion in deals done. Yeah. It was 2019 was as hectic, I think even more hectic than 2016, I mean, in I would, terms of the frenzy of immediate deals being uh -huh. thrown out there. I remember sitting in my hotel room, like prepping for a game I had the next day and listening to you guys on my laptop on the on the on the tickets app. And uh, I mean, it was crazy. I remember so, I mean, you guys couldn't. I, it felt like, it seemed like it was going so fast that it was all you could do to keep up because so many things were happening. And I remember I had, you know, obviously I had Twitter up on my computer. I was talking to Norm. Literally, I had a tweet that said, Ricky Rubio is planning to go to Indiana. And literally, the next tweet was, Malcolm Brogdon to Indiana, Ricky Rubio to Phoenix. Like, it was just like, <laughs> literally in five seconds, everything changed. Oh, my goodness. That was, and, and that night, I think, uh, you know, I was, so that was, I'm listening at three o'clock Pacific, and I remember going to get something to eat. And then while I was at dinner that night, uh, then that's when that whole thing with the Mavs happened where uh, they're trading for Drogic and then, oh no, they're not trading for Drogic. They want uh, Kelly Olenek and Derek Jones Jr. and the deal is off. And it just. Uh, and I went on Fox 4 yeah. Ducey that night on Sunday <laughs> wow. Sports Special and talked about the Olenek trade and pontificated on it. And literally five minutes after our segment aired, uh, the deal was off. <laughs> Uh, well, this is a much, much different July 1st. Uh, it's a July 1st where just today uh, required workouts resumed at NBA training facilities around the league for the 22 teams that will be going to Orlando. So uh, we'll have a lot more on that in a little bit. Uh, Mavericks head coach Rick Carlisle and general manager Donnie Nelson both addressed the media via a Zoom call today. Uh, and getting uh, here to record the podcast. Uh, I did not hear Donnie, but we have uh, looked through and got some information about it. Uh, I was there for the 30-minute duration of what Rick had to say, and we'll cover some of that as well. Yeah, we got all the latest info. Uh, we'll do a schedule breakdown. We'll talk about uh, players being out. We'll talk about Donnie and Carlisle's comments and all the latest. I wanted to start with the decision. The decision, LeBron's television event and decision to go to Miami was – Shockingly, 10 years ago, where, on July 8th. Where has the time gone? And uh, there's been a documentary put out about it. There's been a, a huge article written about it. And it just got me thinking about not so much the TV show itself. A lot mm -hmm. of people have pontificated on that. And, 
and, and all of that, but, but more the decision itself and how where that decision came from and what it's meant for the league over the last decade. Because I think there are a lot of major tectonic shifts that in the moment you don't see happening. I had a, a mentor tell me one time, you know, things don't ever happen as fast as you think in five years, but they do faster in 10 yeah, because you just don't wow. see things in real time happening. But then you look back and you're like, whoa, things have really changed a lot. Right. And the NBA of 2020 is a lot different than the NBA of 2010. Mm-hmm. And I think the decision is one of the main flashpoints of that. First thing I want to ask is, do you remember where you were? Do you remember watching it, who you were with, et cetera? I just remember that I was at home. Uh, nobody was there at the house. Uh, wifey was gone at work. And I remember just watching watching the show, um, you know, going into it really i know that there had there had been various reports and so i was just like genuinely curious is he going to stay is he going to miami i mean i I think uh i guess stephen a smith is the one who had it right uh that he was going to go to miami but i felt like that there were numerous reports that had him staying in cleveland and some had him going to miami so i just you know like everybody else watched it with great curiosity and uh was uh you know, like probably also everybody else getting annoyed that they dragged it out for the first 20 minutes and right. didn't get right to it. I don't think the announcement and if the show started at seven central, which is what I think it was, you know, the announcement it was actually never occurred. At, at, at eight central, eight central. Okay. And uh, the actual announcement was made at eight twenty eight. I was going to guess about eight twenty five. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think I, I recall just getting annoyed about that. And, and the, the documentary that Don Van Natta put together is really good and kind of on the TV show aspect of how, you know, now with, uh, you know, Spring Hill Entertainment and everything that, that LeBron is doing in the media world, they were amateurs back then. And they, uh-huh. you know, something I didn't, I don't think I even realized or forgot about, ESPN donated that time to them. They mm-hmm. sold that airtime, $2 million worth, which was the donation of the Boys and Girls Club. Right. But it was produced wholly by Maverick Carter and LeBron's team. Mm-hmm. With Jim Gray as the person yes. asking the question. Someone they didn't have a relationship with. Yeah. <laughs> and there was no prep. There was no like, hey, this is an inside deal. Tell us the questions. It was really done in an amateur way. And I think that came across. LeBron was very nervous. He had his take my talents to South beach kind of prepared, which is a playoff. What Kobe said when Kobe was in high school mm-hmm. and decided he was going to go to the pros. He said, I'm taking my talents to the NBA. Mm-hmm. I and did so, not all this time. Did not even realize that. Yeah. I, I think I had forgotten until I saw that on, on the show. Um, and so, you know, he had that line, but in the moment it was an awkward delivery. Yeah. And I think the, the number one thing and not just, get too much on the show itself was I think the idea of the show was fine. It was executed poorly. The main thing was that it was the tone deafness of if you're going to do this to Cleveland, Mm -hmm. don't, you know, don't break up with me in public. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that was the critical mistake. If he was going back to Cleveland, Mm -hmm. nobody would have had an issue with any of the atmospherics or the awkwardness or anything. But when, when you, when you rip a city's heart out like that, it just seemed like, what are you thinking? Yeah. And I, I would say that's probably a lot of the emotion that I had at the time. I, I think like like a lot of people, one of my emotions, of course, was that and this probably gets a lot to your tectonic shifts of the NBA, is that this is just something we really would never have seen before. And the idea of, uh, you know, going and joining another team and uh, essentially joining a team with 
rivals on it and and teaming up, you know, that was just, I mean, that was a thing that I thought. And then, of course, the other thing, too, that it just had been, had it had been done publicly and the whole thing just, uh, yeah, did have a vibe of awkwardness and, you know, don't want to be rude about it, amateur-ishness, um, you know, nervousness, uh, yeah, that whole sort of thing. Yeah, I think it hit LeBron in the moment of, oh, this is going to look bad. Yeah, and I think that's what was getting to him. Well, and I think that, look, th- there's there's certainly a reason why in in June of 2011 that I think that we, we have often commented, Brian, that everybody outside the 305 area code was rooting for the Mavericks. And it wasn't just because LeBron left, but I do think that a lot of resentment was harbored uh, for how the whole thing went down, the show itself, uh, the press conference that occurred in Miami a week or two later, you know, people love to make fun the of about day, that. Actually. The one, you know, wow, it was the next day. Gosh, the, you know, not here for one, not here for two, not here for three, four, five, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, rally. Yeah. Not press conference. Yeah. <laughs> the rally that occurred at American Airlines Arena. That is, no, your characteristic, your characterization of it is right. Mine was, yeah, it's, it's, it was definitely a rally. So I think all of those things, uh, and the decision was a part of it and how it was handled. And then for a while, LeBron said, I'm going to go ahead and, embrace the role of the bad guy and that's not what he wants to be it's not his natural yeah. state and so then then he completely looked like he was out of character doing that um so uh, there is a reason that the Mavs were so loved and embraced nationally uh in June of 2011 Dirk had a lot to do with it of course and the Mavs own story but anti-LeBron feelings stemming from the decision and how it was done certainly was a part of that I do remember for the rest of that calendar year I remember I was at, I think I went to the Shark Tank set with Cuban. So I was in LA with them. I was, I was with them in various locales several times. And it was consistent. People would come up and not say congrats. They would say thank you. Yeah. <laughs> because you're right. Yeah. Everybody hated them so much. Yep. It just seemed like they were hacking the system, mm-hmm. that they were doing something that wasn't fair. Of course, it was fair, but it just seemed like sure. you were taking an easy way out. Mm-hmm. Kind of like when Durant went to Golden State. Right. Golden State was really fun and cute for a couple of years, and then it was like, mm-hmm. okay, now you're just you're hacking this. You took advantage of this leap in the salary cap to yeah. kind of not earn it. And I think that's one thing that you've heard Barkley say it and others that Dirk's title with the Mavs is so special because he did it where he started. He didn't put a super team together. He earned it. Yeah, he endured a lot of unendurable things, yes. and then ended up finally reaching the mountaintop. I mean, it was very Hollywood. And it's part of why you saw such the kind of visceral outpouring of emotion, not only here in Dallas, but league-wide. I mean, I don't, obviously I'm a Dirk Homer, but I don't remember seeing opposing arenas spontaneously cheering for a guy on a tour like that. You Mm -hmm. may get the pregame you know, rocking chair or motorcycle or something. (laughs) But to have what Doc Rivers did or to have the spontaneous, you know, to have Boston and and New York cheering for the guy to hit shots down the stretch. Yeah. I You know, I think there's an appreciation for staying with one team for 21 years, winning the way he did, being the person he was, that, listen, LeBron's played, you know, for three different teams, four different stops. Mm -hmm. That's weird. I mean, not and, and you know, on that Dirk point, I mean, not just cheering for him, by the way, but in, in Boston, I mean, crestfallen that he didn't hit a shot, you know, because remember, that was a really, that was a completely off 10, night. Yeah, yeah, it was a really bad night for Dirk and like what was probably his, uh, 
you know, I, I don't have the exact number, but maybe he'd been back for six or seven games at that point. Maybe it was a few more. I don't remember exactly. But yeah, I mean, it was it was not just cheering for him to make it. But yeah, like I said, just just devastated that he didn't, you know, so uh and then Brooklyn. I mean, this you know later on that year, you mentioned New York, so the game occurred in Brooklyn, uh, and I mean the Mavs got just absolutely run out of the gym that night. I mean they lost that game by like thirty five, thirty six, thirty eight points or something like that. I mean it was a little Big Apple uh, hangover. Yeah, it was not good, dude. It was not good. And Dirk had a really tough night that night, and the Brooklyn crowd was cheering so much, and he finally hit a shot with maybe five or six minutes to go in the fourth quarter, and then hit another one, but it ended up being like a two for ten kind of game but but yeah it was that look the the championship experience of the way everybody embraced I want the Mavs to win but I just want them to win it for Dirk and then the way everybody treated Dirk yeah uh, and in terms of your point about how it compares to aspects of the decision and 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 such I mean those were those were incredible experiences from in terms of how Dirk was embraced that I'll never forget and I think it's fair to say, and I think Dirk has alluded to this, that you know, if they hadn't won an 11 and he saw the team kind of torn apart, uh, it's very likely he would have left, and I don't think yep. anybody would have blamed him at that yep. point. Yeah, no, I don't think anybody would have. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, if he had gone ring chasing, everybody would have supported it, and the only people that, uh, that Mav fans would have been mad about would have been the Mavs front office for not getting him the talent he needed to win a ring here. I mean, I know getting into drag out fights with some of our friends from the ticket who, you know, even after the title a few years ago, you know, in 16, 17, were like, let him go to golden state, let him go somewhere. And I'm like, he wants to be here. Yeah. You know, and they were, you know, in in a, in a place of wanting the best for him, wanting him to play significant games Mm -hmm. and not see them, you know, hit the lottery three years in a row. But, um, but yeah, so, but it's interesting to go back to the actual show on the 8th. I was actually with Cuban in Manhattan Beach at a bar mm-hmm. watching it. I don't even, I can't even remember why I was down there, but I was. And he didn't know, and he was visibly shocked at the wow. answer. And was texting then with Dan Gilbert immediately afterwards saying that there's some venom flowing from Gilbert's fingers, <laughs> which later, of course, turned into the Comic Sans the letter. The Comic Sans letter, right. <laughs> so it was just kind of surreal to experience it in, in that way that I did. But I, vis- I vividly remember where I was in, in that whole experience because it, it did change everything. But to me, it, that wasn't the beginning. That was almost the end because the way I worked at it, and I think I've talked to you off air about this a little bit, it started with the 04 Olympics. Because if you remember the Dream Team in 92, mm-hmm. you know, we all know about that. 96, uh, Bird, Magic, and Jordan were all gone. Right. It was still a great team, obviously. Barkley mm-hmm. and Ewing were there and a bunch of others. Right. Uh, 2000, again, a good, great team, but a little diminished. Mm-hmm. And then by the signature moment of the 2000 Olympics for the Dream Team was Vince Carter jumping over Frederick Weiss and dunking. Yeah. Now, so, was 2000 was the close game against Lithuania. That's exactly that, right. And yeah, that was you're the exactly one that right. Donnie Nelson was assistant coach for. And then announced after the game that he would never coach in a game against the United States again. Right. Because yep. I think Lithuania they were so lost close by to, four points or something. I, I, and, and, and honestly, Brian, I think Lithuania like was shooting for the lead in the last minute. I think the only reason they lost by four points is because the U.S. hit some free throws in the last five or six seconds to kind of pull away there at the end. But I think Lithuania was shooting to go in front very, very late in the final minute of the game. So you started seeing cracks at that point. And then 04, of course, disaster hit in Athens. They get the bronze. Yep. Uh, Greece, of course, 
uh, does well in yeah, that. They do. Well, Argentina, Argentina won the gold medal, right? Gold. Yep. Uh, and that's when the NBA stepped in mm-hmm. because the international market, the global market, now it's, it's now recognized as a global game. Mm-hmm. But the Olympics really were what, starting with the Dream Team, helped grow that game mm-hmm. globally. And the NBA basically took over USA Basketball right. after 04. Right. Put in Jerry Colangelo to run it as, as a figurehead. But really, the NBA itself was very in charge with FIBA and USA basketball and basically getting the redeem team put together in 08. Mm-hmm. So and, that, and, and of course, remember that, uh, that kind of started with the team that went and ultimately lost, I think to Greece, right. In 2006, didn't yeah, they the lose to Greece in the, in the semifinals yes. of the FIBA world championships. Yes. Right. And Spain won that tournament, but they lost in the semifinals. If I, if I'm not mistaken to Greece, correct. I uh, don't, I think Greece was actually in 04, but 06 may have been even worse out. I think they got like sixth. Yeah. Yeah. Or that was, no, that was the O2 world championship. Yes. They got the six. Yeah. O2 was the sixth or seventh place finish. O2, that was I the real was debacle. Indianapolis. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That was the real debacle. Then the O4 Olympics, then O6, they did get to the semifinals of the people actually world play Cup. in 07 to qualify for 08. Yeah. There you go. Yep. So yeah, so the redeem team in 08 was kind of the the start of Coach K, this movement. LeBron, everybody kind of went in. Uh, our own Casey Smith was the trainer for that team, mm-hmm. um, and that was basically like, hey, we got to take this seriously again because mm-hmm. players have been sitting out; they didn't want to give up their summers. Blah right. blah blah. We need to have you know practice time together, not just show up right in the host city. Right. All of that, basically, you know essentially to grow the game globally mm-hmm. and continue the marketing of the game, which yeah. has been successful. But the unintended consequences, all, all that is that LeBron, Bosch and Wade all played together for the first time. You mm-hmm. can be buddies, right? But they all played together. They all loved it. And they were like, huh, why can't we do this in the league? Right. And that was the germ of 10. Everybody talks about the decision in 10, but it started with, the 08 Olympics were as a result of the 04 Olympics and the basically kind of slow fall the Dream Team had had and how the NBA itself... Man, I did not think you were going to take us on this route today. I'm impressed. The NBA <laughs> itself, by taking over and, and starting you know, the Redeem Team, brought this all on itself mm-hmm. by basically putting these players together and, and making them think, wow, this is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, 2010 was, or 2008, was the year that the Celtics won the championship with yes. their, if you want to call it, the first super team, mm-hmm. which was put together not by the player. Now, Garnett won it out. Right. Paul Pierce was already in Boston. They traded Jeff Green for Ray Allen. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of put together. Well, immediately they win their first year, and then they go back to the finals and lose in Game 7 in 09. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and yep. still or lost to Orlando teams. in 09, lost a game seven to the Lakers in 10. Sorry, yep. Yes. Yep, you're right. Yep. And so uh, that was fresh in the mind of LeBron and Wade Bosch yep. in 08, 09. And then in 10, they're like, well, let's just make this happen. Mm-hmm. And so that was really the culmination of some time together. As a matter of fact, didn't LeBron say that that – Beating Boston, I mean, when they when they defeated Boston in the playoffs, I mean, there was kind of an homage to the fact that they were the team that had shown them this this right. idea, this concept. I think that that was even stated by LeBron himself that uh, you know they had that there was a satisfaction in beating them because 
the Garnett, Pierce, Allen, 08 Celtics coming together had sort of demonstrated this blueprint. Yes, and so, you know, a lot of people call Miami the first super team. It was the first player-made super team. Mm-hmm. The first super team was really Boston. Right, right. And, and, and I think LeBron, if you remember the, the 08 and 09 Cavs, they both won 60 games, but they were old teams. You know, Daniel Marshall, Antoine Jameson, they, they really had stripped the cupboard bare for veterans, and mm-hmm. there wasn't a great trajectory. And I think LeBron looked yeah. at that and said, I, I, a la Garnett in Minnesota, I'm going to need to get some help. Yeah. And, I think they oh, had, by the way, I enjoyed playing with my buddies. Let's try to do that. Yeah, I think Mo Williams was like the only yes. other guy in that time frame that made an all-star team. I think he was like maybe even – and maybe it was in as an injury replacement kind of thing. Yeah, nobody else uh, – Shaq played there, did he not? Maybe he played there towards the end. It was, yep. I think that was his last stop. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, that was uh, – I mean, remember that LeBron had taken a, a 2007 Cleveland team to the finals – uh, one of those games against Detroit in the Eastern Conference Finals, I think he scored like 24 of the last 25 points for Cleveland in a game yep. that they won in overtime. Uh, the team featured Zadrunas Ilgauskas, who was a former All-Star at one point in his career. But yeah, the rest of the team was Daniel Gibson and uh, you know Larry Hughes and 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 people along those lines. I mean, guys who just uh, you know obviously aren't really remembered for having great careers. And. What's really so we all kind of take for granted we're in the player empowerment era, and a lot of people really got opened up to it in a big way last year when you know Kawhi basically got Paul George out of a, the last three years of his deal and traded and things right. of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but this all started with the decision, mm-hmm. and it was really interesting that in that documentary, and you should watch it. That, that Stern has this. It's John Skipper, who ran ESPN at the time, was interviewed by Don Manetta. Right. And he says, David Stern called him before the decision. He said, don't do this. It'll give players too much power. It'll, wow. it'll give LeBron too much power. Man, I do Basically, need to watch this you know, and Stern was an authoritarian leader. I mean, he yeah, it was his way. There was, you know, we had the lockout the very next year, so he knew he was about to have negotiations. He didn't want to give the players this germ of the power they really had. Mm-hmm. He wanted to kind of tamp it down to be honest with you right and it was just really interesting to see that he he saw this as coming down the road and he was just stopping it as much as possible really to kind of keep control i wonder if there's if there's anything that could have been done to stop it uh you know but but then the thing that that it's so interesting to hear and to watch a lot of things now as you bring this up and how we've evolved in 10 years and Stern certainly had the uh, much more acerbic uh, commissioner's office at the time. Uh, obviously, as you said, you know, uh, was, was much more of uh, an authoritarian figure as a commissioner. Uh, and then now here we are with Adam Silver, who in six years and certainly in the last few months in terms of navigating the pandemic and also with the way that he's come together and work with Michelle Roberts and players from a social justice standpoint and making sure that, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, going to be a big, big aspect of the restart of the season in Orlando using that platform. It's amazing that not only the player empowerment movement and how much things have changed since the decision in 10 years ago, but also the dynamic between the players in the league, which, 
you're saying that basically based on that documentary, Stern still had kind of, a, I mean, adversarial might be a strong word, but certainly his relationship didn't have nearly the cooperative spirit with players as the one we see today with, with Adam Silver. Yeah, more collaborative approach yeah. now. And, yeah. and where did that start? That started with the Donald Sterling affair. That's exactly right. It started with more juice for you, honey, right? And yep. Stiviano. Yep. And to me, that really is the second big thing that's happened over the last 10 or 15 years because what that showed the players was a guy can be, you know, a racist SOB, be forced to sell his team mm-hmm. and put $2 billion in his pocket. Right. The players saw that and they were like, wait, where's I, I made him that money. Right. When LeBron, Wade, and Bosch went to Cle- went to Miami, they all took haircuts yes. to fit together. Yes, they did. They all took, took less money. Less money. So they could have some other money to spend to add players around. Right. To because add, the, you know, the, so they the owners are crying all- poor. We have to have this hard cap. We yeah. have to do all this. You do bring up a really good point that the idea was if we if we do it this way, if we all take a little bit less money, then there will be other money so we don't have to have like literally minimums out there. Right. We can have a Mike Miller on the team. Udonis Haslam. Udonis Haslam. We can keep him and players like that. Well, after that, you'll notice when LeBron went back to Cleveland, what did he do? One-year deals at the max. Yes. He said, I'm getting mine. You figure it out. Right. I'm not taking a dollar less than what I'm owed. I have the leverage. Mm -hmm. By signing one-year deals, now not everybody can do that, obviously, but he had the leverage to pull that off at that extreme level to say, you're going to build the team I want you to build, Mm -hmm. or I'm leaving. Right. You're going to pay me everything, or I'm leaving. Right. And you need to figure that out, because I'm not taking a haircut for you to put it in your pocket. Right. And I think Sterling really, that whole affair really uh, made the players say, even to a greater degree, you know, we're going to, we're not going to let them push us around. Mm-hmm. And then that led us to, and then LeBron going to Cleveland. And I mean, Kevin Durant never goes to Golden State if LeBron and Cleveland don't come back from down 3-1 to beat Golden State when they had won 73 games. And, of course, the cap spike had something to do with that as well. That was a perfect storm of a lot of things coming together. And I feel like that's probably one of the other things. I, I, it sounds like to me you're you're seeing about four real moments that you view from the last 10 years. And, and, and actually, I would say more moments if you want to go back before 2010. But the decision, Sterling... Durant goes to Golden State, and then what happened this past summer with the Clippers specifically? Well, I think Durant and and what happened happened with Paul George and Durant are symptoms of those first two. Gotcha. Uh, Because look, I just wrote down the name. I went through all NBA teams of the last decade Mm -hmm. and just wrote down the names of people who basically forced their way out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mello, KD, AD, Kawhi, PG-13. Kawhi could do whatever he wanted. He didn't force himself out, but he, right. he forced somebody else out of somewhere. Right. Uh, CP3, when he got his deal with the Rockets, Russ, Kyrie, Butler, and Love. Wow. So uh, an, an all-star team of about 15 guys, yeah. basically. Yeah. So uh, player empowerment is upon us, and I think the next level of player empowerment is something we've seen over the last month, which is using it for social causes. Right. We saw it in Mississippi with the football players said, I'm not playing unless you take the stars and bars off the flag. Right. And guess what? In a week, stars and bars were off the flag. Yes. I think players are now seeing that 
just like you see with the All-Star game in Charlotte several years ago. Mm-hmm. The NBA said, we're not going there until you change the bathroom bill. Right. Uh, you know, musicians do it. We're not going to play concerts in a certain city until you change this. Mm-hmm. I have no issue, and I applaud them using their power to squeeze it economically to people who only think about economics going, we're not going to do that unless you change something that is blatantly wrong. Right. And, and that's the next level. It's not just them and their careers and making money. It is now, what can we do to make a difference with our platform? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I have a lot of thoughts on that. And, and a couple of them that stand out to me is maybe I'll, I'll just, I'll briefly touch on this and maybe we'll hit a little bit of it more in a moment. But today, Rick Carlisle discussed the fact that the NBA Coaches Association has a real targeted effort that they're planning for Orlando in terms of that. And and the thing that's, that really stuck out to me with what Rick said was, we have to keep the discussion going. You know, that's that's something that he was very adamant about. It's not just a matter stating. of putting Black Lives Matter on a court and having yes. PSAs. It's really... Keep the discussion going. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, the... Uh, Gosh, I forgot what my uh, what my other point was about that. I'm sure it will come back to me in a minute. But uh, but but yeah, that was one of the things that stood out to me that about what um, Rick had to say today in that regard. And I'm sorry, I hate when I do that, man. That I have sorry, like I another. I, you I, no, you did, I had another point, and then it's but like I do it totally think that's the <laughs> next level. I think that's the next level of player empowerment. Now, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I, I do remember the one thing that I that I was going to say is I do think that there is, and this I said this on Twitter last week. Uh, when the schedule came out, and there is a lot of uh, concern, and 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 some people are smartly concerned, and then some people reacted to the NBA schedule announcement last week. I thought just very very negatively, like basically saying it's not going to work, and it almost sounds like they're rooting for it not to work. And so there's a lot of reasons why, and we'll get into it more here in a moment, Brian. That I want this bubble thing to come off. Uh, as well as possible uh, in Orlando starting here very, very soon. But one of the reasons is is if it doesn't, then there will be an opportunity that's been squandered in terms of having this very, very unique platform for yeah. you know social justice causes. Absolutely. Uh, very quickly, the other things, you know, that, that, so the decision got me thinking that those are kind of the major decision turning points. And then it got me just thinking about what are the other macro level things that have change that have made the NBA what it is today over the last decade plus. And I would think you'd probably agree that analytics, social media, Mm -hmm. those two have made big, you know, just the, the idea. And it it struck me when I heard stories about 2010, you know, we weren't checking Twitter then. Right. We had been on it, but yeah, we were not like glued to it. I mean, uh, funny, funny. I saw my uh, 11 year Twitter anniversary come up on my feed like about two or three weeks ago or something like that. Is that when you tweeted your workout (laughs) regimen as in honor of that? That's exactly what I did. Yes. (laughs) And, and not only, and not just analytics, of course, because that's, that's part of the evolution of, and we're talking about what's happened in the 2010s, the decade of the 2010s in basketball. Then, then I would say that the, the, the other thing, the fourth thing, if you will, is, and I don't think anybody saw this, and and we have discussed, I don't think, right here in Dallas. I mean, part of the reason that the title team wasn't kept together, that there wasn't a stronger effort to keep the title team together, was concern over hard decisions that would have to be made because of salary cap and the level it was going to be at and the luxury tax and the ability to be able to avoid that. And nobody saw 
the TV money that's come into the that has come into the game. I mean, we have that was the ba- that was uh, the Cuban miscalculation in in 2012. Yeah, and we have and, and not he wasn't alone in that. And and we have set and and I think as a media industry and observers of it and participants in it, I mean, we we keep on thinking that the rights fee bubble is going to burst, and and maybe of course the economic changes of what's transpired in 2020 due to the global pandemic that that might be the thing that causes that uh you know we'll see in the next round of tv negotiations but at least up until now there'd been no sign of any sort of rights fee bubble bursting because there's there's always uh you know there's still leverage out there for the leagues uh in terms of don't lose uh holding it with TV networks, don't lose your property to this uh, streaming service. You know, you don't want to let these new streaming services get a really big time sports property that puts them on the map and really then makes them a challenger to the traditional cable model. I know that a lot of things are changing anyway and cord cutting is happening, but that seems like that's still uh, one thing that, uh, that that the big cable networks have is rights fees, uh, is is that programming and and so because of that they're still paying hefty hefty rights fees and that's been just a big part of the change of the last ten years in the because NBA. Sports is the last thing you can't DVR through. Yep, of course. And if you're ESPN or somebody like that, uh, you can charge for your cable bundle more if you have mm-hmm. prime programming. Yes, yeah. But of course, as you said, bundles are going down, so we might see in the next ten years. It won't be TNT and ESPN. It might be Amazon and you know, Dazen or something, right? I mean, it might be different groups that are selling individual uh, subscriptions, you know, for that programming. But, you know, that's why you see Cuban constantly talking about broadcast television and how important it is Mm -hmm. because those ratings are important because that is the lifeblood. Unlike you see in MLB uh, or NHL, it is the lifeblood as it is in the NFL of, of the revenue. So I didn't plan on bringing this up today, but since I, I think this is a great topic, uh, the, the decade of change of the NBA from 2010 to 2020. So you have talked about it from like these uh, macro team building and economic standpoints and things like that, which I think are great. Uh, this is something that I did on New Year's Eve. Uh, I, I put this together in my my crazy stat brain. So, wow, your wife, your wife must have thought you were just so romantic as you're as she's waiting well, there in a, in a gown with a glass of champagne and you're you're tweeting stats. Well, we were in Oklahoma City, remember, this year uh, for New Year's Eve, and so uh, for the second year in a row. And as a matter of fact, uh, the schedule worked out two New Year's Eves ago, where she got to come up there and and we stayed over on New Year's Eve, and so we got to go out to New Year's Eve dinner after the game up in Oklahoma city, but last year that didn't work out. Yeah, (laughs) no, no, they don't have those at OKC, but the, um, so, so while we're talking about that, here's how it all has resulted. Uh, your macro off court points are awesome. So how does it result in what the NBA has looked like on the court? And, and and what those things that you talked about had to do with it, I mean, I guess probably analytics and, and super teams to some degree, I guess, as well, perhaps. Uh, but um, look at how stylistically the NBA looks different from 2010 to 2020. In 2010, there were 18 three-pointers a game taken, 22% of total shots. Um, in 2010, by the way, there were only about 82 shots total taken per game. In 2019-20, before the season shut down, Almost 34 threes per game were taken out of 89 total shots. 
38%. You went from 22% of all shot attempts being threes to 38% of all shot attempts being threes in that decade. Um, the team that was first in the NBA in 2010 and three-pointers a game was Orlando at 27. This year, the team that was last in the NBA was San Antonio taking 27 three-point attempts per game. Uh, mid-range shots have gone away uh, in 2010. 29 of the 30 teams in the league took at least 20 mid-range field goal attempts a game. Now there's one, and it's San Antonio, by the way. Uh, and then in pace, in 2010, one team was averaging at least 100 possessions per game. This year, before the season shut down, 19 teams were averaging at least 100 possessions a game. And so all of that means that uh, scoring has gone from 100 a game in 2010 to 110 points per game in 2020. And I'm glad you brought all that up because that's kind of, you know, that's how analytics has shifted the game uh, to where it is today. And there's going to come a point where, and I've heard people say it's about 65% of your shots from three um, is, is really where you start getting diminishing returns after that. You can't, we got a long way to go then. We're only at 38% right now. uh, Yeah. I mean, some teams like the Mavs are in the forties and yeah, you know, I think the, the Rockets are close to 50 at times. Yeah. True. True. Average. Uh, the Mavericks hit, hit 60 in their loss in Miami right after the All-Star break. Yeah, that's true. They did take um, 60 threes. <laughs> 60% of their shots were threes. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep, yep. Um, but so there's going to reach a point where the analytics are going to even out. There, there aren't going to be hardcore stat advantages anymore, and you've mm-hmm. got to look at other areas, right? which is going to be how do you develop a player that you think is underachieving on that team uh, but you think you can unlock the potential on your team. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the stuff that Casey Smith is doing in terms of, you don't have head trainers anymore. You have directors of player health. And so it is, right. you know, sleep patterns and, and holistically looking at the entire body mm-hmm. and mind. Right. Uh, to not only extend how long you play in a season, but extend careers, sleep patterns, targeted workouts. Right. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. The, the, Strength and conditioning coach plays a huge role in terms of, you know, the kind of workout programs they're designing for players based on age, position, uh, and that sort of thing. And I think one of the other things that I just think personally is going to happen is social psychology, not just talking to people like having a psychologist like Don Coxstein who talks to players, but really understanding that these aren't chess pieces on a board. These are humans playing a game. Mm-hmm. You and I have talked often about the 27 missed threes that the Rockets had in Game 7 of the West Conference Finals. We have, yeah. And how, on paper, it looks like it's the right thing to do, but stats in a macro is not stats in a micro. Yes, correct. And, you know, you can have different uh, different scenarios play out in an isolated instance, we see this with the Mavs in clutch time. What sometimes works all the time doesn't work in clutch time. Mm-hmm. I'm reading this, read this book called The Biggest Bluff about poker, but it really struck me this quote. Uh, it says, The human always gets in the way of the mathematical model. You need to know the base strategy with the analytics, but you need to adjust based on the specific individuals. And then you need to adjust further based on how those individuals are feeling in that moment, in that exact situation. Yeah. And so when they're missing 27 straight threes, they're getting demoralized. And so psychologically, Mm -hmm. they probably may not be giving the same effort in the next shot. Do they have a way, as we've always talked, to just dump it out to somebody, get the ball in the bucket, just as you you hear all the time when a player's cold, take a free throw, see the ball go in the basket. Psychologically, Mm -hmm. 
you know, what can you institute in your system where when variance, when luck just, and that's why this was in a poker book, Mm -hmm. when luck is just not on your side, because luck plays a role, what can you do to get through that? That's a fascinating field of research. And you and I have discussed that Rockets game many times. And, and of course, the person who could have potentially tipped the psychological balance of the game wasn't available because I think we've always said Chris Paul would never have let that team, I, I don't think, lose that game because I don't think he would have let 27 straight threes continue to happen without coming down and saying, I'm one of the best players in the league at shooting elbow jumpers. We're going to run a pick and roll. I'm going to get my elbow jumper, and we're going to make a couple of these to get our heads back headed in the right direction and get our confidence going back in the right direction and stop worrying about all these threes that Ariza is missing. Because I think that he was one of the biggest culprits. I mean, I think 0 for 12 or something like that was the, was the performance he had in that game. Um, you know, to your point about uh, the stats say one thing, but then each individual game game says something different. I mean, how many times have you and I talked about, I have seen the research and looked at it year over year, Offensive rebound percentage never has a correlation with winning. I mean, often, if you look at the top 10 teams in the league and offensive rebounding, five, six, seven of them might be bad teams. I mean, there's there's no correlation over the course of a year that offensive rebounding and winning match up. But how many times do we sit and talk about key moment in the game was an offensive rebound? Um, matter of fact, slump all, shoulders if you're the opposing yeah. team of seeing a guy just slam it back on an yeah. offensive board. As, as you have said when we've discussed it on, on post-game shows, the stats may not say they're important, but they sure can be a nice thing to have in a certain situation. I mean, one of the things that happened because we've watched it so much in the last few months, do you remember how game six went in Miami that the Mavs are protecting this lead of like seven points? And they had they kept the ball from about – and forgive me for not remembering the exact times, but but it's probably like around 310 to go in the game until a minute 50 left in the game because they kept on getting tip-out rebounds by Chandler. And, of course, that was also a time before the rule had changed on the shot clock reset. It was still resetting to 24 seconds. So they had three or four offensive rebounds in a row that basically ate up a good 70 to 90 seconds of time that Miami might have been able to mount one last rally that could have put pressure on Dallas in that game six in 2011. So, so it's really, you know, I think the analytics have exploded so much that, that it is finding the Mark Cuban or Donnie Nelson who can take, you know, the analytics, take the health, take the coaches, take the psychology and it's their job to put out that all together and prioritize in the right ways mm-hmm. and, and use the right balance of each mm-hmm. so that you don't have just one area taking over blindly. Based on like Q&As I've done with Cuban, I think of all of those things. I think he sees the frontier that has the potential for the most growth is the biomedical aspect of it. I think that's the area where he sees that if you're the farther out in front of that you are, the farther out in front you're going to be of your competition around the league. That's the area where there's going to be a, um, what's the business term? Market inefficiency, I yes. believe. Yeah, that, that's what he sees as. Because I think, I think Mark's kind of to the point that's where now. The, that's where you can get a competitive advantage on your yeah. opponent that 
you know, maybe some other, you know, it's the fluffy towels and playstations of 2020. Mark, I think at this point sees that everybody's doing analytics, you know, and they're all of course doing it their own way and they all have their own formulas and their own proprietary everybody information. Knows what everybody's doing and there's not a lot yeah. of, yeah, at this point, yeah, there's nothing there. There's not anything not to n- love analytics. I just, I, at this point, it's hard to say that there's a huge frontier of new ground to be discovered on it. It's just, you know, how well can you execute what you're planning to do and get the players to execute what you're planning to do? And I think uh, just to kind of wrap up this odd macro trends of the decade. Oh, it's good. I like it. I love it a lot. We talked about social media and obviously how that's made it a 12 month sport. You know, Mm -hmm. we didn't always on July 1st, we, you know, as we started the show, we would be refreshing our Twitter. Uh, you know, we didn't, we weren't doing that a decade ago, but it gets you interest in the league. The Mm -hmm. hot stove is, is fascinating to me as someone who worked in the hot stove business. Right. Um, I love the putting together of a team, uh, and trying to outsmart your other front offices. Yeah. The the transaction game is a very popular game. Yeah. Um, but the last thing I think, and we've seen obviously a bit of this, is the Steph Curry factor. And I think, you know, he's obviously exploded on the scene in the last five or six years. Uh, if you if you go to any Mavs game and you've experienced this, when he's in town, every kid from six to thirteen is wearing a Steph jersey. Almost. Yes, mm-hmm. and that's great. If little Brian Damaris was wearing a Steph jersey, that you know, I'll shoot in my backyard and act like him, but that's not going to matter much in the league. Mm-hmm. But there are players who. Listen, it's been an end one league for a long time. You mm-hmm. wanted to be like Mike. Right. You wanted to go to the hole and do fantastic plays right. and all of that. Well, now kids are shooting. Mm-hmm. And what's been the one thing? I remember when I was with the Mad, you, you hear over and over again, this player would be great if he could just shoot. <laughs> right? The most right. fundamental thing in basketball. Right. Well, now shooting is the premium. Now, mm-hmm. I think people see, kids see somebody that they can aspire to. LeBron mm-hmm. is a superhuman. Mm-hmm. Jordan was a superhuman. Shaq right. and all that. They see, oh, I I can do that. Yeah. So I'm going to go and shoot. And when you are an elite athlete now in middle school, high school, you're shooting. You right. can shoot. Mm-hmm. And so as we see these players matriculate to the NBA over the next decade that have been Steph fans since they're seven, shooting is going to improve in the league. Mm-hmm. And already is. And and the thing that's happening, too, is shooting from much longer range yes. with regularity and effectiveness, to be quite honest, than you know we ever would have dreamed. I mean, that, that 30-footers would be like something that you would naturally look for in your offense would have been preposterous uh, five or six years ago, even. I mean, that's how much that's rapidly changed. I mean, th- that wasn't even – that wouldn't have been a thought in 2010 – uh, it might have been a tiny thought in 2015, and now, yeah, that's. I mean, Trey Young, Damian Lillard, Steph Curry, Luca does that. I mean, he's you know he's in the top KP. five in the league in terms of taking shots from outside of 30 yeah, feet. Yeah, you see Porzingis so, do it, and, yep. and there's analytics reasons behind it. Spacing. But yep. What I love about what the Mavs done to go back to my psychology a little bit is they let Porzingis now, you know, in second units get some plays in the paint. They mm-hmm. made him comfortable. They listened to his feedback. Yeah. They don't just say, you're going to do what we do. You're a chess piece on a board. They're, they're psychologically going, all right, we're going we're gonna to allow some of that because it is useful and it helps you and it makes you confident and it makes you feel listened to. And so I think in all these areas, player empowerment, I think Mark is all for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, analytics, they embrace it. You know, He believes in the social media 
brand that these players can have. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shooting, he's all for. You know, the this next level of player empowerment with social justice, he's mm-hmm. gung ho with. As I just commented a minute ago, I mean, you know, try to be as far out in front of everybody as possible on the biomedical industry yes. aspect of things, and that's the next level of analytics that we're in. So. Everything that we've talked about, whether it's occurred in the last decade or whether we think it's going to occur over the next decade, I, you know, as a Mavs fan, I'm confident that those things are being thought about within the organization, which For are sure. going to be the keys to success. Well, it makes me look forward to our podcast now in 2030, as when we, whenever we reflect on all of the things that changed in the 2020s in the NBA. Yes. So, so <laughs> keep that in mind. I don't know, it's just the way my brain works, but I think it's an interesting way to think of the decade that was starting yeah. with the decision and what is ahead of us. Uh, well, we're certainly going to have something really interesting to look back on that started the 2020s when we do our show in 2030. That's right. Because it was... Uh, that's a tease. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it was the pandemic, which, uh, you know, now we're moving towards, uh, you know, taking these baby steps towards getting things restarted. And obviously a big step was taken today, Brian. So, Mark, let's transition to the latest... Uh, news and notes as things continue in this NBA of 2020 to break on a daily basis. Uh, what we did get last week was finally a schedule. Mm-hmm. And so we know um, who we're going to play. Houston, Phoenix, Sacramento, the Clippers, Milwaukee, the Jazz, Portland, and Phoenix. Just in a broad stroke, that's four playoff teams currently in the playoffs, four without. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Portland and Phoenix ending the run, they could be mathematically eliminated by that point and have nothing to play for. So that could also be a positive for the Mavs. Yeah, you would certainly think, I mean, Phoenix is going to be the hardest team to try to jump back into the mix. Portland might, you know, Portland might literally be fighting for their lives to get into that, uh, nine spot to play in that playoff tournament at that point in time. And they'll get a Milwaukee team who, uh, goes down there with, uh, you know, nothing to play for uh, until the playoffs start. I mean, they're you know they're all set to be the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. Um, I think that's already secured, or if not, it, they need like one win. So by the time I think that you said Milwaukee's like the fifth game on the map schedule, right? They are the fifth game. Yeah, so they're going to be at that point. You know, I don't think they're going to have. Uh, you know, there's no home court advantage down there, but right. the, thankfully, yeah, you do want your number one. You know, you want to be the number one seed just because theoretically, then that's going to give you, uh, you know, uh, an easier first round playoff matchup in theory. Um, so, you know, they might get a Milwaukee team that is, isn't playing a Dedekumbo very much. The Greek freak might only be playing 15 or 20 minutes, and they just might be just trying to to, to get themselves ready for the playoffs. And you've got a Utah team with no Bogdanovich, yep. with maybe a less-than-ideal Gobert, and with a Mike Conley who may not play. Yes, Mike Conley came out today that his wife is expecting in late August. So situation will come up where he may have to leave the team and then go be with her and then come back and quarantine for a period of time upon his return. It seems like uh, the due date wasn't specifically mentioned, but it was referred to as late August. So he still might be playing before... He had to leave, but then the thing about the risk there is, of course, he wants to be there for the birth, regardless of what the date is. I guess, you know, theoretically, they would probably want it to happen earlier than later, so he's not having a quarantine during playoff games once those get started around the 18th or so. But And, and you, have, you know, Utah is one of these teams, you know, you talk about the Gobert uh, relationship with Donovan Mitchell. Is it healed? Is it not? It depends on who you talk to. I mean, they're a team that could – crater they could they, they yeah. could come together or they could just take a free fall mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
It's been interesting. I've seen this uh, talking about coming together. I've seen this in a couple of places today. I saw that Giannis mentioned this, and I think I saw Doc Rivers mention this because a lot of uh, players and coaches around the league are going into uh, situations, uh, Zoom calls, media availability mode today, with today being the first day of mandatory workouts for players. Um, But I saw Doc Rivers and Giannis both refer to the fact that uh, this title does not deserve an asterisk this title like will deserve a gold star is the words that Doc Rivers used because of how unique the situation is. And Giannis said that this will be the hardest NBA title ever to win. You know, Junior Miller brought this up a couple of weeks ago on the ticket. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would aim to have him on our podcast here in the near future to talk about this because he kind of sold me on that as well. That really? Because of everything going on, uh, the unique nature of it, just this is, you know, there's no home court to, right. you know, support you if you're one of the better teams. And, and usually it's a top seed that makes it through, let's just right. be honest, mm-hmm. that uh, this is going to be, it's going to be harder for the top teams to get through. And I certainly think they're more susceptible to tripping up for yes. sure. Yep. And I, I, I think that that is not just spin. I think that, you know, it it could be a real badge of honor because everybody's going through this. It's their minds are on other things. Just the level of concentration needed. Um, I think Carlisle talked about it today in the presser. You know, this is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. All the different things. You know, not being able to play even practice runs against each other. You know, until you get to Orlando. And one of the things I think that benefits the Mavs is that. Rick is a guy that thrives on the challenge. He does. And as a matter of fact, uh, and, you know, thrives, embraces it. And so um, that was one of the questions. I got to ask a question today during the Zoom. Rick talked for 30 minutes. Apparently, there were a lot of other people in the queue to ask questions. But, you know, there was only so much time to ask questions. But I did ask him. I said, you know, I, I think I've... Uh, you know, been around you long enough to know the kind of things that you like to say. And Rick, in press conferences, Brian, does not want to say uh, a player being out is an obstacle or, you know, we have these hurdles that we're facing. No you know, excuses. He doesn't like that kind of language. He wants the language to be, oh, well, this isn't a hurdle. This is an opportunity for somebody else to grow. You know, that's always the way that Rick has talked about it. And he said, I don't like my players looking at things as obstacles and hurdles. And so today when I asked him that, he said, well, look, you can look at the protocol and the things that we have to do as daunting. And he said last week in an interview that I heard on the radio last week, he said, we have to approach this with great respect and humility for the things that we must do to make sure that this works out the proper way. But uh, today he said, you know, you can look at this as obviously very daunting, but, uh, you know, we're looking at this as a once in a lifetime, hopefully, kind of situation where, you know, we're going to, you know, really have an opportunity to grow and experience something very unique. And so, you know, he's he's always the guy who tries to look at it from a different perspective in terms of uh, when it's easy to look at it from a negative perspective, put another way of thinking on it. Yeah, and I think that's going to serve the Mavs well. Now, just in terms of news, um, I can report, and, and Donnie confirmed, uh, no Mavericks players have tested positive. And according to Donnie today, no member of the organization, because front office personnel and staff, all, the whole basketball operations area was tested. They're tested every other day. And as far as they know, 
um, you know, it takes 24 to 48 hours to get test results. So they don't have the latest batch probably in mm-hmm. depending on when that occurred. Um, as, as we've seen around the league, some positives, uh, the maps have been clean. And I felt like that yesterday, did you get the vibe that some of the reporting made it sound like that the, the, the number or the, the names and numbers that came out yesterday were new? But see, I didn't think that was the case. I just thought that it finally came to light some more specifics about the 16 players that were announced. Remember last Friday, Yes, Brian? I didn't get the impression that these were added. Yeah, correct. I thought these were just part of the 16. Uh, I felt like there was some... Uh, undercurrent of a vibe out there yesterday that it's like, oh my gosh, even more players now and more people are testing positive. But I think that the Spencer Dinwiddie and DeAndre Jordan specifically with the Nets coming to light and then just three players, nobody specifically named with the Pelicans. I just assumed that those were all part of the 16 players uh, that were talked about last Friday uh, that no specifics were ever given about. And, and you know, obviously some players have decided to make that known who they are and, and others have chosen not to do so. You know, what's interesting about those 16 names, which is about 5% of yep. the players tested, mm-hmm. is that a lot of people have come out and said, well, that's about where the national average is. National average is actually, you know, 6 or 7%. Yeah. This is better. Nate Silver pointed out something really interesting from 538. Mm-hmm. He said, it's not really an apples-to-apples comparison because – when you're getting tested as, you know, you and me go to get tested, mm-hmm. we're doing it because we we have symptoms that we fear maybe we need to get tested. Right. So it's not a sample of the population. It's it's rather a sample of, I think I need to go do that. Right. So it's really not as good of a number, that 5%, as it may sound, because it's you know, if you were to sample the entire population, the, pro- the number is probably much lower than five. If you sample the entire population, yeah, that's a good. So, point. what it means is that, you know, players have homes in Florida, California, Texas, some of the hot spots, mm-hmm. as well as listen, young people of that age just have more social contacts mm-hmm. and, and probably have more exposure. And I think that the general vibe right now looking across the country is that's what's driving a lot of spikes is, and I don't mean this, uh, you know, to criticize them or anything like that, but younger people who have been out in more social situations, uh, you know, I mean, Everywhere is reporting that, uh, well, not everywhere, but I feel like most everywhere is reporting and saying that what they're seeing is a much younger average age of the cases in this current spike that we're dealing with right now. Well, I think we all can look back at our 20s and talk about our invincibility. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah, would have would have felt the same way probably at that point. So so this brings me to a point that I want to get into uh, in this our, our our discussion time with you uh, about about the restart and where we are and the news that's happening around it today. And this seems like a good a time as any to ask you uh, since the last time we did this podcast, which was a week ago Monday. Um, you know, I expressed some concern myself. Where are you feeling right now with what's going on in the country and given the results that we've seen so far? Uh, I still am of the fact, and, and Adam Silver referenced this yesterday in a quote, you know, it would take a dramatic shift in positive cases within the league uh, for something to change. But I'm in the 95 plus percent that everything is going to 
move forward. We're going to play games without interruption. And he's, and he's, you know, I think he's done a really good job of communicating the gravity of the situation. I mean, he says every time we, we understand there are going to be positive tests and we certainly understand that nothing that we do is going to be risk-free. Um, so, so you feel even the, the numbers that are occurring around the country, you're still in that about 95% range. Yes. Cause as we talked about last week, it, if you're going to do this, this is the best way to do it. Yeah, I mean, this this quite honestly might be, as you said on our podcast a month ago, this bubble environment might be one of the safest places to be in the country. And Rick said that on on the his media availability today, and I agree. Again, you know, I'm not a doctor, but listen, I'm going to go out and and pick up food today. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you, the person, you know, I haven't been tested. I got an mm-hmm. antibody test six weeks ago, mm-hmm. but I, I haven't been tested, and I guarantee you the person handling the food and making the food didn't get tested. We have no idea who we're coming in contact with, even right. masked. Right. These people are getting tested every other day. Mm-hmm. And so if the bubble stays intact and people adhere to the protocols, it should be the safest place to be, Right. even in Orlando. You know, the uh, some things have been starting to come out on the Disney health aspect of it. And, you know, as as people that represent the in the unions that represent Disney cast members have said, uh, you know, quarantining them to work in the bubble is not possible. No, it'll be the have, cohorting we talked about. Yeah, we, we can't. You know, we have single mothers who are raising three children who work as housekeepers here. I mean, this, I read this specific quote, who are making $15 an hour. This is not somebody who can quarantine away from their family for three months, uh, you know, for, for the benefit of some dollar athletes. Yeah. For any number of reasons. So, uh, you know, what we're, what we're reading is things that we've read in the past, but have been confirmed. Uh, you know, there will be no contact between, uh, room cleaning personnel and players. Cleaning of rooms will occur, uh, at a much, greater infrequency than they typically would have recur would occur at a hotel when an NBA team is staying there. Uh, they'll be much more infrequent and they'll occur when the players are out of the room at, at pre-scheduled times because they're at a practice or a shoot around or a game or whatever. Um, and you know, in terms of baggage handling, uh, which of course would typically be done by hotel personnel when an NBA team checks in, uh, that will not happen. There will be no touching of, uh, an NBA player's bag by any of the personnel there at Disney. And, and anything going from the team to Orlando, like exercise equipment that they want for their mm-hmm. use, they're going to have, you know, rooms and suites to put stuff in, yeah. training tables, all that. That's being sent to a central location yeah. <laughs> that is going to be disinfected yeah. before it goes into the bubble. I heard uh, Rick reference that in a radio interview last week. He was making fun of how what the address was that he had to send it okay. to because of how... how uh, how goofy way or something no (laughs) no it wasn't on donald duck avenue no it wasn't that wasn't the uh the joke the joke was just the he said it's like a five-line address of some special place that they're having to send everything that they want to send ahead of time for it to be down there and be disinfected i'm sure he's not going to be at the post office (laughs) counting stamps out but he'll be all right (laughs) but you know listen it is good to note that the Chinese Basketball Association, although they have much stricter protocols, mm-hmm. you can't leave your hotel room essentially over there. Right. Uh, but the Bundesliga has not had any issues. Yeah, Germany did theirs. Yeah. Um, I think, listen, it's natural for players who have families like DeAndre Jordan and others to you know, be wary of it. But 
looking into it more, I, I just feel like, you know, they should feel as comforted as they could possibly be going in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just some other things that Rick said today. Before I get that, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm with you uh, in terms of, you know, case numbers are hard to see, and certainly it does give you cause for concern. But I was texting with a mutual friend of ours this week uh, who works for another local sports organization here in town, Brian, and I, and I said, I've made up a term for how I feel about this whole thing right now, uh, about the NBA and MLS bubble in Orlando for that matter, and that is I, uh, I'm pragmatically optimistic. You know, so I'm always optimistic about things. It's how I try to approach life, Brian, as you know. But, you know, you do have to have a certain sense of, uh, uh, you know, responsibility and understanding of what you're facing. And so that's uh, rather than cautiously optimistic, I'm deeming myself pragmatically optimistic at this point. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So we'll see. So I just want it, you know, I want it to happen for a lot of reasons. And a lot of it is not, and it's not just based on I want my sports back. Uh, you know, right. I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people do want their sports back, but this is very important for the league from a financial perspective. It would be, you know, it's a bad loss that they're suffering this year financially. Uh, it's a catastrophic loss if this doesn't happen. And then that means, I think, a lot of negative impacts for people who are, you know, just rank and file workers at teams around the league, man. And I, you know, love the league and don't want to see uh, anybody who is working for teams around the league affiliated with promoting this great sport and this great game and this great league, I don't want to see them suffer. Uh, so I want this to happen. And as I mentioned a, a little while ago, it's going to be a very unique platform for social justice. And the other thing that I would add, too, is I think there might be uh, you know, a great lesson to be learned here in terms of uh, for the next pandemic. Uh, you know, if the uh, if the new thing they're talking about in uh, China that came up on Twitter this week about the the new version of a swine flu that they think might be able to like has pandemic potential here at some point in time in the future. Uh, if if the NBA can demonstrate through the enormous level of planning of what they've done, I think that would be a great lesson for all of us in terms of a mindset we need to have for the next one of these things, whenever it may be. Hopefully it won't be, but I, I think that would be. Uh, you know, something that we could learn out of this. And I think there would be a lot of value uh, in, in, you know, as masks are a big debate. Um, I think, you know, who knows what kind of footage we'll see from things outside of the game in the bubble. But if players are doing their own little like video diaries, I think it would hold a little bit of weight to see LeBron James walking around with the mask on. Sure. You know, I think for, for those that are still holding out on that, uh, unfortunately so, uh, I think there would be, you know, there would be quite an example that would be set by there and, and hopefully would help us, uh, you know, get more people on board with that, which I think would do, uh, you know, do some degree of percentage in terms of lowering the numbers. So before we get to more of Rick's comments, why don't you touch on what's happened, uh, with FC Dallas and the MLS, cause they are playing in the same place. Yes, they're in Orlando, and FC Dallas is due to start the MLS's back tournament next week, next uh, week from tomorrow. Uh, well, July the 9th. I'm, I'm saying this a week from tomorrow, like, but people will be listening at different times. So on Thursday, July 9th is FC Dallas's first game in this tournament. And it came to light today that MLS, since teams have arrived in Orlando a few days ago, specifically FC Dallas went down on Saturday, uh, there have been 
six positive tests of players for Major League Soccer since they've arrived at their respective facilities in Orlando. And uh, unfortunately, all six of them are associated with FC Dallas. They're all players. Yes, all players. Um, I believe so that it was... these are players who tested negative in Dallas. But yes, tested negative. Tested positive in Orlando. So uh, what happened apparently is that two players tested positive upon arrival in Orlando, uh, and, and in FC Dallas's case, again, just to get the days right, they went down on Saturday, June the 27th. So two players tested positive upon arrival. Those two were pulled out of the team setting, of course, and then were into uh, isolation. And then as further testing continued, four more players came up as positive. Uh, and then just to reiterate, though, no other members of the entire MLS delegation at the host hotel have tested positive, and no other club has been in contact with FC Dallas's delegation since they arrived in Florida. So it sounds like... 392 somebody, people have been tested, Brian, with six positives, and all six were players for FC Dallas. Listen, just speculating, it sounds like somebody got it, you know, after being tested the last time in Dallas, got it at home or wherever, and yeah. spread it around the team a little bit. Yep, yep. And that's, you know, that's the the big concern that you have is if there's, you know, if there's, if you somebody gets it in a window between testing times, and it can spread. You know, that's the concern you have from the NBA. That's the Achilles heel of the bubble is that if it is penetrated by right. the virus, it can spread rapidly. Yes, if people aren't adhering to the distancing that is laid out, which is why, of course, that's you know the the thing that you that will offset the chance of rapid spread is, of course, rapid testing. So it doesn't have a chance to spread around for a long period of time because, in theory, you hope that you're perpetually going to be on top of it. And, of course, there could be a window of time that's going to be a lag, and you'll miss the window where somebody gets it. But you're hoping that you're doing the shallow testing, so that adds a little bit to that, you know, not catching things as early as you could when it's further up the canal. Yeah, when it's the deep nasal, when it's the deep nasal swab. That's correct. Yep, it's a good point as well. So do you have any other further uh, Rick news and notes? Um, Well, you know, he just went over today. I I, I thought he really stressed uh, that they're – you know they they understand what they're up against in terms of the of the challenges of all of this because even Rick did have to of course you know the guy who doesn't want to use the terms hurdles and obstacles and challenges did say we we certainly understand all of the challenges that are involved here but our players have worked hard uh, I've liked what I've seen since I've been able to come back in the gym which Rick noted was last week um, you know as we reported on the podcast last week head coaches would start coming back into the gym last week and and he and they have. Um, some other things that he noted today, kind of did a little injury update. Uh, you know, Powell is doing light jogging on the treadmill, but obviously he's not a player for Orlando, still just five months removed from an Achilles injury. Uh, he said Jalen Brunson, uh, still probably two months away from being 100%. So, uh, he said, you know, he's not going to be playing in Orlando, uh, two months from now though. I mean, what if the Mavs were in the second round of the playoffs? I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Uh, Rick did address the Courtney Lee situation. Uh, that that he's out, but will be going with the team to provide uh, you know a veteran presence around the team and in the locker room and on the bench, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you know Willie Cauley Stein told him that uh, he's opting out because of a family situation. Rick didn't spell it out, but of course I think everybody's heard the report. Uh, he and his partner are expecting the birth of their first child, so so he won't be there. And that led to the signing of Trey Burke, which has not officially occurred. He was not there today. 
Uh, it was mandatory to start today for all players, but they still don't have the Trey Burke deal actually signed, sealed, and delivered. But they're certainly talking about it as, you know, I mean, Rick addressed it today. It's not There's like he said. There's physicals and things like that that yeah. need to take place. Yeah, it just specifically hasn't happened yet. This is the first yet. day that you could do that starting on July 1st. So, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, it's 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 all systems go. And uh, it's interesting to note that Brunson and Powell will be going to Orlando. Mm-hmm. And Lee, yep, to get rehabbed because the training staff will be there, right? Rick, so that will count against your, you know, seventeen players, right? So they're only going to be taking, I guess, presumably fourteen healthy players down to Orlando. Uh, Rick addressed the fact that at this point, uh, the NBA Coaches Association has worked out with the NBA an agreement that, of course, there will be health screening for older coaches, but no coach will be targeted simply because of age in terms of denial of coming to the bubble environment. I'd uh, be shocked if if there was any movement in that. Yeah, and uh, if there's yeah, if there's uh, you know screening and some sort of like really significant comorbidity that uh, you know comes up, I suppose they'll they'll revisit with that particular coach at that point in time. Uh, but but no head coaches or assistant coaches, Rick said, will be targeted because of age. Uh, the NBA Coaches Association, Rick announced today, uh, is planning on using, as NBA players are, of course, but the Coaches Association is planning on devoting significant time to using the Orlando bubble and the games and that environment as a platform for social justice. As a matter of fact, uh, Rick said that they have formed a group, NBA Coaches for racial justice. And as I said earlier in the podcast, he said, you know, we've got to keep the conversation going. Locally, Rick said that he, Jamal Mosley, Stephen Silas, Dwight Powell, had met with uh, representatives of an organization, Mothers Against Police Brutality. So that's something that they're focusing on here in a local area in terms of talks that they're having with an organization to see how much more they can get involved in, and specifically. So Rick uh, wasn't asked about that. That was uh, information that he specifically made a point to volunteer and spent a lot of time talking about well good stuff and i think by the next time we talk we will have mavericks in orlando so we are getting closer we are uh to play i have one last nugget i want to throw at you oh i like that 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 came up over the weekend i don't know if you're a big golf watcher but uh the tournaments have started up they've had three or four handful of tournaments and the scores are low Mm -hmm. and one of the players was asked why are the players playing so well and one of the players responded, well, uh, we're able to focus more because we don't have the galleries. Well, and well, well. So we're able, frankly, to play a little bit better. And it got me thinking about the NBA. Mm-hmm. And what if shooting is better because you don't have the distractions of the fans? You know, we all know that shooting is better at home than it is on the road. So obviously you're going to even that out. It may even either way. But a team like Houston mm-hmm. or Dallas or whoever relies on the three more than another team, will we see better three-point shooting as a result of, you know, just a, a, a more, you know, you see it in practice. These guys hit them all over the time. Now, yeah. <laughs> whether they've got guys coming at them or not, and obviously they're not going to shoot as well as they do by themselves in a practice setting, but, you know, could we see a 1% or 2% uptick yeah. in three-point shooting? Well, Rick, and will that benefit certain teams more than others? Uh, clearly, a team that's reliant on outside shooting, like Houston and Dallas, would theoretically be the team that would most likely be benefited from something like that. Rick was asked today about playing games without crowds there. He said, 
um, that because they're coming off this unique layoff, he does expect that the quality of play might suffer a little bit at the beginning just because of getting ramped back up. So, so there will be that to go through. But he said the intensity of games will not be impacted by the lack of a crowd. He said uh, there's just, you know, everybody has something to play for. You know, there's not any games down there, at least initially, involving teams that don't have something to play for. The 22 teams going down there from the beginning are all in the mix uh, to, to be playing for something. And so, you know, the, the intensity he said will be there. Uh, it may take a few games for the quality of play to ramp up because this has been such a unique and strange layoff. Uh, he didn't address the shooting aspect of it, uh, cause he wasn't asked specifically about that. I think the one interesting point about it is not knowing what these buildings, you know, I, I've been to Orlando and as I told you before, done junior NBA games at that wide world of sports, but I just don't know how they're going to have these places configured. But, um, you know, uh, a big arena does have a shooting, you know, a different kind of shooting backdrop than if this is going to be, is this going to look much more like a practice gym, which is smaller? It doesn't have all that space behind the basket. And so therefore yeah, one of changes the, the, has, the depth of the shooting background, you know, stands in it. I think okay. I called games in that one. I'm not sure. I, I, I can't remember which one, uh, it, it's, um, it has stands on the end, but not on the, not I don't okay. think on the back back courts the backboard side. Okay, all right. Um, and then I think a couple of them are just almost glorified practice facilities. Right. So um, you know that definitely plays a yeah. role. Yeah. The the lack of uh, size uh, and and depth perception behind the basket. Just like for you see when you see the Final Four and shooting goes down because they're playing in yeah. stadiums. Yes, playing in a huge dome. Great point. Right. So I don't know. It just it just struck me that you may see the Houston's and Dallas's. You know, could there be a slim advantage if you know players are able to focus more? And one thing I thought of is, you know, listen, you, you call these games. You know that when Luca's doing his little dance between his legs outside the three point line and mm-hmm. doesn't really know what to do, sometimes the crowd gets really hyped up. And I think because he loves playing to the crowd, mm-hmm. sometimes he jacks a shot that maybe he shouldn't. Right. That's not going to be there now. Right. So does that affect, you know, I think we're going to see, listen, they're incremental things, uh-huh. but in playoff settings, that can be enough to where, you know, is the focus there more on playing the right way, on shooting better, that you're going to see higher quality basketball? Well, incremental things is very important. I mean, you know, as you say that, I mean, I recall the things that I would say during that 2011 finals run, and I said many, many times that, uh, it was a group of veteran players who had done everything except win a title. And so they all knew it was their last best chance. And so when you just had a collective group of great players, super focused and just totally committed. Now, I'm sure people think, well, isn't everybody super focused and totally committed during the playoffs? But, you know, maybe you think you are, but maybe you're only 90 percent in and. 92% to 100% when these games come down to two or three possessions that make the difference at the end of the game that might be you know that's that's why that's why your terminology incremental really does have some application here because a lot of these games come down to the end yeah, and a couple of possessions making the decision from 36 to 37% that's a big deal sure sure and you know coaching you're going to be able to hear every coach the coaches on the front row are not masked right so you're going to be able to hear Defensive Rick, calls and offensive calls. Rick said he, uh, he uh, along the lines of what the arena vibe was like, he said he did understand. He thinks that there will be sound and uh, lighting that you would, the kind of lighting that you would see in an NBA game. 
Uh, he, yeah, so I he saw did something that, where I think Silver even said, like, you know, there'll be some app that fans can punch on and and whatever teams fans punch on it more that the, their color lights will show up i, I don't know i mean there's hmm. a bunch of gimmicks probably playing wow wow I, <laughs> that one's one i had not heard <laughs> but it was just interesting hearing the golf analogy that, that you know it's possible that you know you could see some things we may not expect as a result of this environment. I've had, it's funny, I've, I've had a little concern about Luca, just because I, it's funny that you looked at it from the way that you did, and I think about how he some of his best, crowd. yeah, I mean, he's a showman. Right. I mean, he he loves the entertainment aspect of basketball, and I think Luca does, I think your point is, is interesting, and I had never really thought about it before. I always associate Luca playing off the positive energy of the crowd, and that's interesting that your perspective on it is that that energy doesn't necessarily always produce um, a positive result or a positive decision or the best decision, you know, so that's... That's a unique thing that we'll bear watching, and maybe we'll be able to discern that. Maybe there will never be anything that happens where we'll actually be able to discern if there is, you know, some sort of impact. But I think it's a great point because you know we have you know the environment there. If you've been to summer league, like the late nine thirty summer league starts between two kind of blah teams where mm-hmm. no one's playing, it's basically agents, you know, uh, scouts, uh, NBA personnel. They're quiet because those guys aren't cheering. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's really going to be the environment. Even with opposing players, they're not going to be cheering. They may ooh and ah at exciting plays, mm-hmm. but it's going to be a muted atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So unless is, they pump sound effects in there or something, unless but they even do that. that, I mean, like you know, defense, you know, and that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should do it. Maybe you should throw it to Usher, just like I did at the 2010 All Star Game when we were um, in concert together. But I think that. Uh, one one last note is that I think something Donnie said that we may have alluded to last week that Donnie and Mark are going to be outside the bubble. There's a hotel outside the bubble right. for uh, certain executives and agents uh-huh. who will not be under these strict protocols. They will be uh, masked and bussed in and seated at the top of these arenas, mm-hmm. very, very far away from teams right. in a group. Right, and then immediately bust back out to that hotel outside the bubble, so that they're res- you know they're not restricted. They can go in and out. So if Cuban is doing Shark Tank, he can fly in for a week, stay at that hotel, mm-hmm. come to some games, leave. He's not under these quarantines and all of that. So right. that is, but he won't also, and because of that, he won't be in contact with the players. Yeah, he'll he'll be bust in, sit seated at the top of these arenas, right, and bust right back out with no interaction with anybody the nb the uh, maverick management representative as johnny nelson confirmed on his zoom call earlier today no surprise is uh the the maverick's life or assistant general manager keith grant he'll be the the management point person uh and keith is you know that's a role that he already has in terms of uh yeah, on, the road. Traveling on the road again. yeah traveling on the road for as long as i can remember that that i've been with the team so he's the the point person for administrative managerial type of matters and such on the road and i don't know if this will be made public but you know today is the day or or july 1st is the day that uh teams have to submit their 37 man traveling parties right so it'll include for the mavs the players 17 players including the three injured ones plus the social media representative the pr person scott tomlin and then the additional uh what is that 
18 names. Yeah. What, you know, uh, a lot of Zoom calls uh, that uh, Scott Tomlin will have to be arranging because I guess that's going to be the the method of communication. Uh, you know, there's you know, it's not like what was happening right before the league shut down. Remember, Brian, that there was that period of time. I mean, a very short period of time, like a game or two where interviews, you know, they were bringing everybody into one room and the media weren't sitting anywhere close to the table where the player or the coach was addressing people. And, and then, of course, the league shut down. And so now, um, you know, even in my case, as the team play-by-play voice, not allowed at the practice facility and no other media members, uh, you know, there's, there's the media availability that will occur now in terms of talking to players will be facilitated by the team PR into a Zoom call. There were 46 people from the Dallas-Fort Worth sports media on that Zoom call with Rick and Donnie today. And I think that there will be literally a handful of national media allowed in the bubble that have to stay the whole time. Mm -hmm. So I I, I would not anticipate local media going. And frankly, there's probably not a lot of benefit. There's a lot of cost to it. But with no access, what's the point? Yes. Um, And it's just one more person that you have to account for in terms of the the protocol. True. Oh, well, yeah, I don't know how that works. I I think there may be outside that list. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, outside the 37, but yes, accounting for the protocol. But I think that what you're going to see is, yes, you'll probably get a player on site for Mm -hmm. your broadcast. Yeah. But all the post-game normal stuff that the general media does, I think will be done at the hotel because those players aren't showering. They're going straight back to the hotel. Yeah. This uh, is it's going to be different. It is as different as you could possibly imagine. But um, you know, as, as said earlier, pragmatically optimistic, man. So let's just keep on, uh, you know, hoping for good news on this thing to, uh, you know, to get the us. Good there. news is no no mass players or any personnel positive. Yep, Donnie confirmed that today. Uh, everything looks, you know, full speed ahead. So uh, as we wish everybody a happy July Fourth. Um, we will be back with the Mavs in Orlando next week. It's a wrap.